Hey, welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. I spoke today to Jonathan Gottschall, who is a scholar of storytelling. Um, his academic background is in the science of, of storytelling, and he's written a couple of books uh, on storytelling, the most recent of which is The Story Paradox, which is what we spend most of our time on today. He had uh, also written a book before that called The Storytelling Animal. He's a distinguished fellow at Washington and Jefferson College, and he argues that human beings can no more give up narrative than breathing or sleeping. And so the question then is, why are stories so important to us? Why why do stories uh, have such a grip on the human imagination? He argues now that the primary function of storytelling is to sway the listener in some way, to change how they think or, or feel about something or, or someone. Uh, stories, he writes, are influence machines. And so part of the political divide that we have today is a, a divide of this, the story of America, for example. Are we a city on a hill, a beacon of, of hope and light and liberty and progress? Or is America an oppressive supremacist and bloody empire? And so in a deep sense, then the culture war is a story war. And, and in light of recent political developments, Jonathan says our task now is to save the world from stories. In part, he says, by trying to tell stories without villains, which is obviously very difficult. Um, so along the way, we talk about the difference between the suspension of disbelief and narrative transportation. Obviously, we talk about politics quite a lot, but we also talk about the role of religion and religious stories, about the role of luck, and the lack of political pluralism in, in academia. I came away from the conversation, if anything, even more convinced about the power of stories, but thinking a lot about our decisions about which stories we choose to immerse ourselves in. I think it's a, obviously a two-way relationship between us and, and the story, as well as in the way that stories layer on top of each other in a sort of narrative collage, if you like. And so it's left me with a lot, lot to think about, even having read his work and engaged with him today. And I, I do think that the role of story in our lives is something that we should, we should think more about. And so I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I do. So Jonathan, welcome to Dialogues. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So uh, let's start with your story about why you're interested in stories. Uh, how did how did you end up becoming so interested in stories? Uh, and how do you think about the story you tell yourself about your own journey, if you like? Oh, boy, that's a good question. Um, I actually always have trouble kind of recollecting my past well enough to figure out how I ended up on this road. And then as soon as I do end up recollecting it, I start getting suspicious of whether, of how much of this is a true story and how much of it is fictional. But I'll tell it anyway. Um, it, it probably began back in graduate school. You know, I, was, you know, I, I went to get a PhD as a, an English literature uh, specialist, uh, hoping to be a professor someday when I grew up. And uh, it was the 90s, and it was the height of the sort of postmodern deconstructionist era. And I came in with very high aspirations and very, I guess, uh, maybe even a naively romantic view of what was possible in terms of knowledge acquisition, hmm. that we could hopefully understand some of the phenomenon we we study uh, in a more durable and more reliable way, in a way that can withstand the scrutiny of you know ensuing generations, uh, rather than just the way it has always seemed to me in the academic humanities generally, and in literary study particularly, that we're just chasing our tails around in, per in perpetuity, never getting anywhere, just chasing our tails, chasing our tails until we drill ourselves down into the earth. And I thought there must be some way 
to, I don't know, um, actually figure things out. And I yeah, began casting find some, around. Find some, sort of, find some sort of bottom so it's not just narrative yeah. all the way down, I guess. Well, and so we're just not playing a game, game. Of, yeah. of status a acquisition game. or something. Yeah. You know, where we're, we're going, we're being professors, and we're doing our research. It's really just we're just competing with each other to get, you know, more Vita Inc. And we're competing with each other to get better honors and better professorships or whatever. Um, I wanted to figure. I wanted to figure things out about these really, really important questions, especially about why human beings um, are storytelling animals. You know, this is a very strange activity for any creature to be involved in, to spend hours and hours of their day every day involved in these sorts of narratives, and oftentimes completely fictional narratives. I mean, ask yourself for the audience, you know, why is it that human beings spend hours of their day every day hanging on, riveted by the fake struggles of pretend people? This is time that could be spent in a multitude of other ways. We could be spending it with our families. We could be spending it wooing mates. We could be spending it learning a language or an instrument. So this is just a, a, a giant mystery at the core of the human condition. How do we we become creatures of narrative? How do we become creatures of art, this kind of art-obsessed, art-infatuated ape? Um, And I actually wanted something like real answers to it, something like the answers that scientists come up with. And so I started to wonder, you know, is it possible that we can just go and raid the sciences and raid their theories and some of their data and especially their methods and apply them to traditional humanities subject matter. And at this time, you know, I felt very alone in that that effort, but it turned out as I got deeper into it, there was this whole science, a new science of narrative psychology emerging. And narrative psychology, I, I define it as the study of how our brains naturally shape stories and are in turn naturally shaped by stories. And this science was forming with, with inputs from people like me, a little bit on the edges, but mainly by actual psychologists and neuroscientists and some communication scholars, um, some, some business uh, scholars. Uh, you know, it's a, it a very uh, big tent uh, of interdisciplinary scholars. And in general, they were finding these kind of uh, amazing and sort of obvious, but also sort of counterintuitive results that stories have a lot more power in our lives than most of us are aware of on a day-to-day basis. So, Mm -hmm. like, you know, if you ask people, like, um, you know, are stories powerful? They'll say, say, yeah, but they don't really treat them that way. They're not on guard against stories. And I realize that I'm about to just recite my entire book. (laughs) You know, I'll go on for two hours here. So I'll I'll stop there and, and maybe move on to another question. Well, it's great. Well, well, that's one of the uh, the great pleasures of being a book writer is that you can then just spend hours talking about your book to anybody that anybody that gets on. Gets I, actually on with you. I actually don't enjoy it. I actually hate really? the talking part of it. I like the writing part of it, but I don't like the talking part of it. Um, Why not? I feel like well, the reason I became a writer, I realized just during the, the doing publicity for this book, the real reason I became a writer is because I am uncomfortable talking. Um, and when you write, you have this magical power. Here's what the, 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 the magic is. It's a time machine. It's the art of time travel. And you get to go back in history over and over and over again until you can actually phrase yourself in the way you, you meant to communicate, in the way you meant to be heard. Even just that sentence I wrote 
I said right then, mm. I would then go back and polish it and make it better. <laughs> you know, and so you have this incredible control of a, as a writer over your communication. Whereas when you're speaking, it's always this sort of high wire act. And I don't know about you, but I always feel like, like when I do a conversation like this, um, I always feel like it's a little bit like giving, uh, being given a public pop quiz on your own book. And, you know, but it's public. And so you might, you know, you, you know, might you, might yeah, you might get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. 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 You might forget something. Like, oh, I you might forget. Get, yeah. Yeah. Or you'll get Plato mixed up with Socrates or. Absolutely. I remember I, did, yeah. I, remember I was on the radio once uh, and this is in the UK and I actually, I, I made a statement that I realized on the way home uh, could only be true if the uh, American War of Independence had taken place 100 years later than it actually did. I can't remember what it was, but it was something like, I said something like the founders had been influenced by some early 19th century thinkers or something. And I, just, I, was, I was in a taxi on the way home uh-huh. and, my, and, and my face burned crimson with shame. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm almost course, always mortified. <laughs> almost always mortified over over how I've conducted myself in an interview like this. Sometimes over just like something massive like that, but other times it's like, oh golly, I just rambled and rambled my way through this this or that response. Okay, well, um, let me just take all the anxiety away. We have a very friendly <laughs> a friendly audience on my podcast. as a select audience. But it's interesting in the context of storytelling, and this wasn't where I was planning to go next, but, but uh, when you're, when, and you have this lovely picture in your book of a story being told uh, in a tribe, you'll remember the name now, but, but if it's very oral and you're thinking about you know, most, of, most of the traditions of storytelling is oral. And there's something about the way you can tell a story uh, w- with your voice. I was just thinking, for example, we had our neighbors over the other day and all three of us told it classically, yeah, we're in a new era, how did you meet? What's your story? And we compete to tell the story in the funniest way or the most yes. romantic way. And we're using our voice and we're using touch and we're using so on. And so isn't there also something from a storytelling point of view, something a bit more, more powerful about doing it orally rather than on the page? So you lose some precision perhaps, but don't you gain uh, persuasive power? Yeah, I'm sure you do. Yeah, I'm sure you gain so much more. If you're a good story performer, if you, if you feel like you're a good performer. The, the picture uh, in the book is a picture of uh, Khoisan Bushman. Mm. And uh, it's from 1947, I believe, and the image is called the Storyteller, and, you, and the audience can look it up. It's yeah, I'll put one it. Of my it's beautiful. Very beautiful. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's one of my very favorite uh, photographs that's ever been taken. You know, like I have it up on my wall over here. Um, and what's cool about it is you have this the Khoisan Storyteller at the center of the of the picture. And he's got his hands up in the air, and there's a, a ring of young people around him, maybe 15 or 20 young people, all the tribes, uh, adolescents and children. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the, the, the storyteller is an elder, and he's got his hands up in the air. And it's like, to me, he looks like he's a conductor. And he's like literally orchestrating all of the feelings in these people's hearts, all of the thoughts in their minds. He's brought them into hormonal uh, harmony with one another and neurological attunement. We'd be able to show these things. We brought these people into the, into the lab today. He's wielding this enormous power, and he's only doing so with his, you know, very, his, his, his simple story, his uh, expressive hands, his, his expressive face. It's this enormous power. Mm-hmm. And I thought the, the image is just so expressive of the power that storytellers wield over us. They kind of bring us into this sort of like, if you, like you go to a movie theater and mm-hmm. you sit down in the front row 
And instead of watching the screen, you turn around and you watch the people behind you. This is another great illustration of the power of storytellers wheel. What are you going to see? You're going to see a bunch of hypnotized zombies who are just staring blank at the screen, their jaws hanging. They're like uh, puppets controlled by invisible wires. Again, that storyteller is orchestrating all of the thoughts in their heads, all the images, all the feelings, and has brought that whole theater into a, a condition of emotional, intellectual, neurological, hormonal, uh, physiological attunement. Um, and again, this is what has drawn me to the subject matter of storytelling, this vast power storytellers wield, and uh, the, the the increasingly clear sense that this this power isn't always wielded uh, in the best interests of humanity. So for good or for bad, and I should say that in your previous book, you focused more on the good and this one more on the bad. But I was thinking a bit about some of Joseph Henrik's work. Um, I had him on earlier too. But looking at religious um, uh, traditions and how it's important you say the same words, you listen to the same words, even you kind of move together. And so that's a slightly different thing because you're participating in the story. And so the way you just describe the people in the theatre is kind of quite a negative one. But but you can also imagine, like from the photograph you just referred yeah. to, there's also something very beautiful about sharing the energy of almost dissolving temporarily the yes. the edges of your individuality and becoming right. part of that shared yeah. story and that's there's there's so i mean we're always going to talk a lot about the negative but that's the huge upside right the synchrony and sense of shared story it's it's one of the best things about being human mm. um the, the the my most recent book is the, the one i guess we're talking about mainly today is called the story paradox mm. and the paradox of that i'm talking about is that Stories are, at the same time, simply the best and most constructive force on earth, and also the worst and most destructive force on earth. So all of that, all of that ambiguity of storytelling and all of that clash of bright and, and dark is encapsulated in that image of the, of the Khoisan storyteller. Because, because again, just, just let me give you an example of this, like... Mm. That book, uh, th sorry, um, my, the first book I wrote about storytelling was called The Storytelling mm -hmm. Animal. It's more about the positives mm -hmm. of storytelling, like mm -hmm. you said. Mm -hmm. um, and I also included that Khoisan image in, in that book as well. And there was a certain group of people who I expected to be, to be attracted to that book. People who were like English literature types. Uh, people who were interested in popular science. You know, I had a, a certain idea of who would be attracted to the book in mind. But you know who else was attracted to it? People in the trades of communication and persuasion. Hmm. Political people, marketing people. And what they saw in that image was not, you know, something warm and fuzzy. They saw power. They, they saw power in that image. And they said, oh, storytelling is how I can get a piece of that power. Um, so... Hmm. The power of storytelling. So, so one of the one of the big points of of my work is that, that stories aren't good. <laughs> Almost all of us 
can't right. help but think of story with positive connotations. I think of them as, as as good things. But stories aren't good. They're just they're just powerful. And I think of them actually as sort of like mercenaries, uh, or the force of story is like a mercenary that mm-hmm. as willingly sells itself to the bad guys as to the good guys. That's a great that's a great analogy actually. I think in your book you refer to stories as of necessary poison. And I think it's what it's interesting. I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but in that that photograph do we know what story is being told? I looked Be- into that very, very right. hard. Um, we, I do have some sense for it. Um, I know it was... Here's what I was... I actually wrote a different version of the book. Not a different, an earlier draft of the book when I thought I had pinned down what the story was. but And it was... Um, what was it about? It was about... Um, well, the, the short answer to the question, I don't want to take up time on this. The short answer to the question is I don't exactly know. It's a sure. trickster It's a trickster tale about the, 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 the trickster figure, the jackal. Hmm. So it's kind of a warning, perhaps, in some ways. And it feels pedagogic just looking at it. There's obviously a lot of young people in the yes. picture, too. And I, the reason I think it's worth spending a bit of time on it is because it does illustrate your point, is that if we subsequently learned that what he was actually doing was telling a story about how the tribe over the valley uh, were possessed by evil demons and that we should therefore, under the cover of nightfall, go and slaughter all of them. Um, We might feel slightly differently about that picture than what we probably assume, which is that there's something more positive. And so absent the knowledge of this story he's telling, all we know is that they are gripped, and that's the that, that that verb gripping. I think it appears in your work too. It's like yeah. that's the best thing you can say about a novel, isn't it? You say someone's gripped, and and on a blurb, if you're a novelist, what you want is gripping, mm-hmm. or something like that, unputdownable, and you do mm-hmm. you do get drawn into it. Which is a good, actually, a good segue because I think we should back up just a little bit and say when what is a story as an experience so how do you know how do i know when i'm in a, a story and to be more specific you you don't align yourself with coleridge's uh, famous quote about the willing suspension of disbelief you have a slightly different way of thinking about how you know you're in a you're in a, a story can you say a bit more about that what makes a story and how do i know that i'm in one or listening to one yeah there's uh, this is a, a difficult question because um People have argued about this forever, you know, like, what is what is a story? Uh, what is not a story? What is the gray area in between? Um, the simplest definition of a story that, that most people would agree on is it's an account of what happened. A story is what happened. Um, now, for it to be a story we care about and a story that rivets us and, and actually pulls us in and holds our attention. It can't be a story like this. Uh, I woke up this morning, I walked to the kitchen, I ate some bread. Um, that, that will rivet no one. Uh, that's, that has no special power to grip our attention. And um, Stories... Uh, stories have... We think of storytelling as this kind of wildly creative, artistic genre. Even if you're you're telling a story like in a narrative history or in a book like mine, there's still an art to it. Um, and in many ways, it is a, a wildly creative genre. But no matter where we go in the world, no matter when we go there, we always find the same amazing thing. No matter how different the people seem. Those people, the Khoisan hunter-gatherers seem very different than modern people. Um, no matter how different they seem, we always find the same amazing thing. These people tell stories. On the whole, their stories are exactly mm. like ours. The same basic obsessions around sex and death and power and 
status, and etc., and the same basic structures. So what's a story? A story almost always has a, a character. Um, the character has some sort of problem, some sort of predicament, some sort of trouble in their lives, mm-hmm. and they seek to solve it. Stories are problem solution structures. Stories are not about people having good days. Stories are people have yeah, it's boring. <laughs> That's boring. It's, it's, it's interesting that it's boring though. It, should, it really, yeah. really, yes. really shouldn't be boring. Like mm. I, if you if you're going to enter into a mental simulation, um, if I said, "Hey, uh, Richard, I'm going to give you a mental simulation." And you and I said you can either go into this hellish landscape of this sort of story, or you can go into this hedonic paradise where everything is good and no one suffers, and all and uh, you and you just have fantasy wish fulfillment. You might say, "Hey, I prefer that that, that wonderful place, not that hellish place." Mm-hmm. But we routinely, regularly, predictably prefer to go into the hellish worlds of storytelling rather than heavenly ones. Um, so the other the. I'll just, I'll, just, you, I'll just go on for one second longer. Yeah, um, sure. And talk a bit more about the narrative suspension. I'm not sure I'm getting the phrase right, but the sense yes, of immersion. Yeah, that's what I was going to switch over mm. to. So um, you mentioned uh, Coleridge, and Coleridge is famous for many things, including uh, his statement that you know that when we go into a, a story, a, a fictional story in particular, it requires a willing suspension of disbelief. So, you know, you're reading Beowulf, let's say, and you say, well, I know this story about Beowulf is bunk. But in order to actually enjoy this, in order to actually get lost inside this narrative simulation, uh, I'm going to turn off my skepticism for a while. I'm going to forget this is false, and I'm just going to enjoy the ride. But that's not really how it works. Um, When it comes to suspension of disbelief, our own will has very little to do with it. If the storyteller is good, the storyteller just breaks into our mind and takes over. And the, the, the suspension of disbelief is something that they actually press upon us rather than a decision that we make. This is all tied into probably the, the best studied and maybe the most important idea or, or concept in, in story science, this new story science. It's called narrative transportation. And narrative transportation is this delicious, wonderful thing. It's one of our favorite things to experience, and we experience it all the time. So listeners, you know, today might have gone to work, and they come home, and they turn on Netflix, or they pick up a novel they love, and they mentally teleport out of their own mundane, boring, and perhaps quite painful realities and into these marvelous alternative story worlds. And people love it. Um, But there's a couple of things about narrative transportation that that bear noting. The first is that this is an authentically altered state of consciousness. It's a state of high, rapt attention. So we all talk about short attention spans. Uh -uh, Uh-uh, not during story time. We can pay rapt attention for hours and hours upon end if the story is good. But it's also a state of high suggestibility. People are more open-minded when they are in storyland, which is the nice way of putting it. Uh, another way of putting it is that people are that tend to be a lot more gullible. Um, they're easier to mold, easier to manipulate, which is why people like marketers, propagandists, conmen, demagogues, misinformation and disinformation peddlers always work. 
uh, in terms of storytelling. Yes, because you've you basically softened us up uh, yeah. in some way by kind of by by drawing us in. But I wonder a little bit about this the, the willing the willing suspension versus the transportation because I mean we can all I think we can all understand what you're talking about right now. Uh, we're late to the party, but my wife and I are binge watching uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, right? And and like I suggested to her the other day that we just take a break. We, I think we just got through season two, and I said, maybe we should just watch something else. Or she looked at me with with more. Dis- distaste and I can ever remember it I think in our marriage it's like what are you talking about <laughs> because we're so invested in it now and actually I also do wonder why did you want to take a break uh, you know or maybe it's because I'm reading your work but I, I think it's just because like I want I want to control the degree of narrative transportation mm. I think that the danger particularly with binging and so on too is that that um, you can the, the lines become quite blurry um, between your own world and the world that you're in, you're inhabiting temporarily, to the extent you start, you uh, for me, it's if I start dreaming about what's happening in the show, right? If my dreams start to get inhabited by Mrs. Maisel's comedy or what a tang with Joel or whatever, then, then I think, okay, maybe it's time to take a break, Reeves. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe 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 you're over you're overdoing it. Um, so I, I think I'm a, a bit sensitive to that that boundary. But mm-hmm. the thing I was going to ask you is that we do usually take the step to open the book turn on netflix etc and so whilst yes we get transported it's not like someone turns my netflix on for me or thrusts the book in my hand and holds a gun to my head until i've read the first hundred page right i am choosing and so to what extent so i know you i am choosing to go into that transported state and i can usually choose to come out of it too i need to stop to go to the bathroom or get an ice cream or something and so so i just wonder i wondered at various points if it felt like you'd almost overdone the degree of transportation it felt a bit like you know mesmer in the 19th century yeah yeah it felt a little bit sometimes a bit like you'd understate the degree to which we do have on off switches yeah choose to read or listen or yeah. go to the tribesman or the comedy show or to turn Netflix on. Don't we choose that? We choose it and turn it off? Oh, that's a good question. This is another question where I'd like to sit down and make some notes and do some writing about it rather than <laughs> no, you have talking to say about it off comes, the top of you my have head. To, you have to just say the first thing that comes to your mind and then I'm going to hold it against you for the rest of your academic I know. career. I know. You, you won't, but somebody will. Um, uh, well, yeah, I, I am, um, when I talk about it in relation to things like hypnosis, um, I am analogizing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not a perfect analogi- analogy. Um, I don't even know if hypnosis really works uh, in, the, in the way that we think of it as working. But if you look behind you in that feeder, those people look hypnotized. And when, and, you know, I, I do also analogize um, the state of being under the influence of stories to being under the influence of drugs. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think in the book, I don't analogize. I think I, I, I say that I consider storytelling to, to be literally like a drug. Uh, well, it has, a sa- with, has the same physiological effects in many with cases. Ha- having it, the same sort of physiological effects, yeah. And it dampens your own ego in the same way yeah, it's like the liquid. Yeah. But, I, but, I, but I am... But I am uh, open to what you're saying. Um, I, I was, I was worried about overstatement. Um, and so, so for instance, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there's a massive physiological 
reaction that's occurring when we are absorbed in a story. And I tell this short story, this little, this little, you know, one and a half page, two page short story, very, a very simple scenario, a very cliche scenario almost where you have this, um, girl, young woman, uh, menaced by a man and, you know, she's kind of running and trying to escape. And I point out that, you know, if, if this girl were real, uh, and not just a literary figment, she would be having a really massive and powerful uh, fight or flight response. And what's cool about this, though, is that if you were reading this in a novel, like a, a thriller novel, or watching this in a horror film, and a scientist came in and hooked you up all, to all the right machinery, they would be able to show that you, the viewer, you, the reader, would also be having a muted version of exactly that same fight or flight response, your heart rate would be appreciably up. Your breathing rate would be appreciably up. Your um, uh, hormonal system would be changed. You'd have more cortisol in your veins. Uh, you'd have more um, endorphin release, which would give you actually higher tolerance for pain, just like a person has during a fight or flight response. Um, but I, but I also, you know, point out that of course it would be nothing like the same level as what it as what you would feel or experience if you were the one who's actually going through this experience everything would be much more heightened now then on the other hand um you don't want to understate the power of these stories too much either one one kind of area of research i'm really interested in is horror films and if you ask people mm. Um, like, hey, what was the most traumatic thing you saw in the media over the last 20 years? They won't say, oh, you know, it was watching an ISIS beheading video. They won't say it was, oh, it was watching the, 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 the World Trade Center uh, collapse. Um, most people say it was horror films. Um, seeing some horror, horrible film, uh, not, not horror, some horror film that, that actually scarred them. And gave them, you know, PTSD-like symptoms for oftentimes for years on end afterwards. People won't go into the ocean for years after watching mm. Jaws. So you don't want to overstate the power that these stories have, but you also don't want to undersell it. And one thing that we're, we're dealing with is that if it seems like I'm being a little bit imprecise, it is important to, to, to note that this is all very new. This is a very young and very immature science where a lot more is unknown than is known. And a lot of the stuff we think we know, maybe it won't hold up in the long run. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Especially the overlap with neuroscience and social psychology and, and so on too, which is, I mean, it's, I have to say it's absolutely fascinating work. I think one of the reasons I asked the question about the decision to kind of enter and exit narrative transportation is because I think it gets a little bit to how how we should think about our own relationship to stories. And where I think where I think you land is, and you say towards the end of the book that you know you just if you if you're you feel you're, there's a story being told, you just try to take a deep breath, you try to see the story from another angle, you sort of try to depower the story in, in a sense. I think what we're trying to do is you're recognizing the power, you're trying to sort of depower it a bit. You can't take it away altogether. You're trying to say, okay, what? How can I consciously depower the story? And I think that's, obviously that's hugely important, and part of progress is to try and depower stories and and think more rationally. But another way to think about this is, I know I'm going to be told stories. I know I'm going to live in a story, and so I'm going to be quite careful about which stories I choose to be told. 
I'm going to be quite careful at which stories I choose to tell my children. Uh, there's a reason why we kind of restrict stories maybe to some children. And I'm going to consciously try to choose to put myself in stories that I think in advance are going to shape me. Because we're all being shaped by stories, as you said a moment ago. So the question is like, how do I want to be shaped? What shape do I want to be? And yeah. then what kind of stories do I need kind of, you know, shaping me in that case? And that might be one reason someone would choose, you know, let's put a positive spin on a religious tradition, choose to enter into the story of a religion, because they might say, well, actually living in that story for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning is a heck of a lot better than a lot of other stories I could choose. Uh, and I'm choosing it. So I choose the stories that shape me. And it could be lots of other different stories too. And therefore, I have a degree of control over the power of stories over me. So I, I accept the power of stories to some extent. And then I just try to be more selective about it. Does that make sense at all? It's a different Absolutely, strategy? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think, it's, I, think, I think everybody's doing this to, to some degree. Uh, again, in some, in some ways, I think you can look at the, the, the arguments in the books I've done on storytelling and see them as really profound. And then on the other hand, you can see them as really banal, like everyone knows this, you know. And once you've had it pointed out to you, then you really know it. You know, it seems really obvious. Why, why, would, why, would, why would this even need to be said? Um, so what you're talking about, about choosing the stories that are going to influence you, you know, we can see this happening right now in, in America, in, in education, for instance, where there's right. massive wars going on at the school board level about what stories we're going to allow into our curricula um, because in the background, all of these parents, all of these teachers, all of these administrators understand that these have enormous shaping power. Um, mm. Now, what I worry about, however, is... I mean, there's a there's a kind of a a good side to all of that, and there's a bad side to it all too, because what will happen is that people like you or people like me or people like X or Y or Z will all decide to just stay marooned inside our own stories that are comfortable to us, that are consistent with our pre-existing biases, that are consistent consistent with our ideological bents mm. and before you know it people are living in entirely isolated mutually conflicting realities um and i do feel like that's really at the i mean i'm not the only person who feels that way but i feel like this is really at the basis of so much of our you know our, our political cultural pathology is we are living inside wildly different universes of stories Right. Well, of course, it's occurring to me that one of the one of the worst things you can say to someone in some cases is you've changed your story. And yeah. the idea of changing a story, of allowing stories to be fluid, of allowing them to grow, allowing one story, allow, abandoning a story um, about the world or even about yourself is a really hard thing to do. And we know that from some of the psychology around beliefs. It's just really hard to get people to do it. But, yeah. but what if that's even more true of a story? So you, you actually talk about the story of America very well. And you have sort of myth one and myth two. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because I, I was trying to find the exact quote, but there's this fantastic description about one's a shining city on the hill and the other one's Mordor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're both kind of wrong. Can you say in the context of these debates about the story of 
our own history um, and how you how you deal with the myth one, myth two problem. Because um, as you said, you, by labeling them myths, yeah, you declare your hand that clearly they're both wrong. It's it's, it's right. they're both wrong. So where right. so where so there isn't a right there isn't a right history. There isn't a right story. So how do you tell a story of? of the nation one that might help us to overcome some of our disunity because it's difficult that's the tension right you want stories that that help to create a sense of unity but but that are plausible and without yeah. going down one track or the other yeah, yeah. <coughs> excuse me um myth one and myth two uh so myth one is um the the story of america that is sometimes referred to as American exceptionalism, this idea that we're this, you know, uniquely uh, blessed, chosen people. We are the paragons of freedom-loving, heroic, uh, virtuous, you know, this just a, a sort of whitewashed, um, glorified American history that might have been strongly dominant up to the 50s or something like that. And then in the 1960s, uh, you know, a sort of counter history of America began to form. I call it Myth Two. And this is another story of American exceptionalism, but where America is just exceptional for its um, greed, uh, its destructiveness, its violence, its buffoonish sense that it's the good guy when it's really the bad guy. So, Myth one is a very, very bright story of American history. And myth two is a very, very dark story of American history. And for the most part, the right wing of our country is living in myth one. And the left wing of our country is living in this very dark story of myth two. Uh, my own argument is that these are both mythologies. Um, mm. And what is accentuated in one is left out of the other. And what's needed is a sort of shuffling together of, of these stories into uh, into a, a new story that takes account of both sides of this. There is something mm. special about our country. Um, at the same time, there's been, you know, uh, obviously, you know, a, a dark side to our history as well. Mm. Um, and so, but the hope is to come up with a story that that can unite the right and the left. Because I do worry that um, you know, there's been all this talk about, you know basically the the wellsprings of a civil war are beginning to percolate and bubble up. Um, and this sounded very, I don't know how this sounds to you, but this sounded very hysterical to me when I first started my book, and it seemed less and less so uh, as, as I went to work on it. Um, but I do, I do worry that we're kind of, you know, that if, we, that if we're not basically on the same page, something like the same page, um, that we're headed towards dark days. Yeah, and it's, I was thinking quite a bit about the particular role of story in American identity uh, as compared to other countries, um, including my my home country, um, and therefore the stakes are higher around the story that's told because, of, to some extent, America is a story um, in a way that other countries aren't. Other countries are a race or a, a certain history or a, or a very clear space or whatever, and that's just right. much less true of America. So, so without us, you know, America is a story or it's nothing. I guess would be the kind of blunt way hmm. to put it. And so, what that story is then becomes kind of incredibly important. And if there isn't agreement on some basic elements of that story, yeah, then it, it creates a much bigger problem 
um, that for the US than it would in another, in another country. I think precisely because it is, it's a, you know, the story is what's at the root <laughs> in a way. I'm sort of thinking out loud here a little bit just to kind of get, get your response to it. So what that means is that if you lose this sense of, I think uh, Benedict Anderson had this book ages ago called Imagined Communities, and he described nations as imagined communities. But, but in the US, it's a real stretch of the imagination, honestly. Um, yeah. And so it makes the story even more important and therefore maybe the fracturing of that story even more important too. And so we do, I think, well, I'll state this and see if you agree. I think we do need a story yeah. of America. Yeah, we, we do, do need one that, and, and one that is largely agreed to by most people most of the time. I'm just not sure what that story is now. Oh yeah, I don't. I, yeah, this is this is this is a this is a hard one. Some, some actually, you know, going back to writing versus speaking, I, I think some things are very hard to deal with orally. Um, they're, they're 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 so complicated, mm. and there's and you and you need so many caveats, and you need such care and discussion, especially things with such high political stakes as, as, as something like this. But uh, America is a story, you said, yeah, and I and I do feel mm. like at, at bottom. You know what we are doing right now in America. We talk about polarization. We're talking about a story war. We're talking about mm-hmm. people. Th- th- this fight is ultimately about how the story of America should and will be told. And when people are fighting on these school boards about whether or not we should ban these books or whether or not you know critical race theory should be taught or some softer uh, version of uh, the, the story about American racism, slavery, and all, and all that stuff. Um, this this is at bottom a fight about how we'll tell the story of our our country, um, and it's also not it's quite it's lack it lacks humility, and I think that uh, I see the need for humility running through your work, um, both in terms of recognizing just how much I mean you you, the, you evocatively describe it as shit happens, and so a degree of humility about how we actually got here, rather than just retrospectively creating this story about pre- yeah. you know, it was all destined, right? And so I think just that, that kind of intrinsic messiness uh, and luck and misfortune, kind of it's just it's a horrible mess most of the time, and then we kind of create we have to try and create a coherent story out of it. But the other aspect I think humility runs through your work is this sort of openness to amending our stories, opening up our collating our stories, taking part of our story and adding another part of the story. It's more like a, a layering. It's like papier mache, you know, those things mm-hmm, we just get bits mm-hmm. of paper and stick it on with glue and then stick more. It's 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 not one story. There's a sort of fun. There's a fundamentalism to this story war. Uh, yeah. It's like it's this or that, and I'm not going to concede. As opposed to, I mean, the very terminology "war," which you use in the book, does suggest winners and losers. As opposed to a story journey where we're merging and and recognizing it, because you know you saw in on the left just absolute refusal to say that the that the War of Independence wasn't about slavery. Right, yeah. famously in the 1619 project, and absolute refusals on the right to kind of recognize some of the real harms that were done too. And so it's there's a fundamentalism that creeps into storytelling sometimes, which is where things really go wrong because then the story doesn't grow. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I guess, how should I... Uh... How do stories? How do stories meet each other and become new stories? I guess is what I'm asking you. This is not. Yeah, I don't book. know. I'm being, complete, I, I, I'm being completely unfair. Well, I guess. I mean, but, I, I do have some idea about this. But I don't know if it's plausible for it to happen. You know, our, our politics is so broken. And everyone's so angry. But I, I get to the end of the book, and I, and I've been I've been saying uh, largely 
dark, scary, negative things about storytelling, um, drawing us in, in, in a sort of dangerous existential risk sort of situation due to our misunderstanding or failure to understand how the psychology of narrative works and to understand how stories are warping our own minds and warping our own calculations and setting each other at each other's throats. And I come to this, but I, but at the end of the book, I kind of come around to this um, surprising conclusion and the conclusion is that we should continue to tell stories um, not just because we're doomed to tell stories. We can't, we're storytelling animals. There's no way out of it for us. But because stories really do have this special power that people attribute to them the power to enhance empathy, to create understanding, to build bridges across our divides of country and class and culture and century. Um, but only if we can resist telling these stories in ways that are guaranteed not to work. Mm. So if we want to actually build bridges of narrative across these divides, rather than just blowing up the few bridges we have left, we have to above all resist this giddy and deeply human temptation to draw people on the other side of our, of whatever the divide is as the flattened out, you know, one-dimensional bad guys in our morality tales. This is a very primitive and a very crude way of thinking. It's a very primitive and crude way of telling a story. And it, it, it completely characterizes myth one and myth two. So in myth one, if myth one is, you know, this is the, the, the right-wing the right version of American history, it's people on the left who are the villains and the bad guys, and, and vice versa. Um, this doesn't work. This is, this, is, this is bad strategy when it comes to – it's a good way of prosecuting a culture war, but it's not a good way of, right. of achieving the kind of – you know, social. It's not a good way of achieving social progress. It's not a, a good way of achieving achieving the compromise needed for a democracy to actually move forward. It's a good way of prosecuting a, 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 a war. Um, and so, what you'd have to do, for instance, if you're on the left and you're telling the story of Myth Two, where where basically people on the right are the bad guys and the villains and the Voldemorts of your story, you have to get people on the right to say, you know what. I'll come over and live inside that story where I have to be the fool or the buffoon or the vampire. Uh, they're not going to do that. They're going to say, no, I'm going to go into my own story world and I'm going to make a story where you're the clown and the villain and the vampire. Um, that's just how psychology works. <laughs> yeah, you dehumanize them, put them into another tribe. And so what that means, I think, is that um, there is a limit, actually, to what we were saying a minute ago about the story of America and so on. Because if the story has to accommodate a lot of pluralism yeah. and a lot of diversity, yeah. then there are limits to how bonding that story can be. And, and one definition of a culture war is uh, my story is going to become the basis upon which we organize our society. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's interesting how... People never see it that way. The bad guy is always the one who has the totalitarian vision for society. If you think about Bond movies or Marvel movies or whatever. Like the villain now is always like, I, I can see things you can't see. I'm making the tough choices to wipe out half the population to save the planet or, or kind of whatever. And the, good, and the good guys are always about friends and family right. and town. Yeah. And so it's always like small, they're, they're, they're doing the small stuff, the relationship. And it's the bad guys who are... Totalitarian. So it's occurring to me now, just now, that, like when you use the phrase scheming, 
right? They've got a scheme. Mm-hmm. They've got a plan. And so the right think the left have got a plan to t- genuinely, and I have this in my own family, think that we're going to turn this into a socialist state where everyone's watching everybody and has a chip in them and all of that. And, and the left genuinely think the right want to create a, like a white supremacist society and deny black people the right to vote and send it. But they yeah. do genuinely think that they have a, a blueprint. That's the word I'm searching for. That the story becomes a blueprint. Yeah, uh, and everyone else has to fit into that blueprint too. So that's the limit, I guess. Stories aren't that good at pluralism, I guess is what I'm saying, right? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the if you, if you go back to um, these 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 really fundamental questions, how did we become creatures of story? Um, we have to take this back, to, you know, to hunter gatherer days. And one of the you know, this it's a multi part explanation. It's probably very complicated, but probably part of the story is that. Storytelling helped tribes form a sense of common identity, helped people get on the Mm. same page about what the rules of the society were, what the morals were, what the values were, um, and just kind of had this sort of bonding function. You know, we all believe in the same myths. We all believe in the the same values inside those myths. Um, But the negative side of the tribe bonding function of storytelling is tribalism. You know, so they've, they've, they've produced this sort of in-group amity, A-M-I-T-Y. And often also the cost of that, though, is out-group enmity. Uh, because in the very instance of showing what the in-group is with the storytelling, the good guys, the protagonists, it also has these bad guys, these antagonists, these outsiders, these people who are not part of the tribe, who it's okay for us to villainize, to hate, and even to kill. Um, so w- one of the things I was most interested in during this whole project is, um, if I can just bring up something kind of r- related to this, is we think of storytelling, as I mentioned before, as, 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 have, as being this very wholesome thing. You know, it produces uh, empathy. Um, this is the most common thing we'll hear about stories when story is celebrated. It's celebrated by great artists, by thought leaders, even by research scientists who talk about this empathy-building capacity of storytelling. And this is all true, and it's all good, and it's all dangerously one-sided. Because this takes account of all this warm, generous, charitable feeling that stories can uh, build in us, while genuinely not even seeming to notice that there's a much darker sort of energy circulating through the stories that we love. And it wouldn't be wrong to call that energy hate. We hate Mm -hmm. the villain of the story. (laughs) Um, We want to see this person punished. There's a phrase I I, I borrow from another uh, scholar. Uh, He calls it empathetic sadism. Empathetic sadism is this wonderful feeling we get from stories. We love it. Um, When the good guy of the story either captures or humiliates or even kills the bad guy of the story. story. So exactly, this is a paradox again. The empathy-building power of stories is what makes stories such a good force for uh, drawing us together. But at the same time, it's this, this uh, villain, uh, villain, villainization tendency in stories is also what makes stories such a wonderful force for dividing us and setting us on each other's throats.
Mm, because you draw lines. I mean, I, I think to be fair, even in this book, you do you, you do have some of those positive stories. You you talk about the movement towards same sex marriage, for example, yeah, being influenced yeah. by stories. You quote Biden's thing at Will and Grace, but also a story I hadn't I hadn't heard before. Actually, maybe you you could just uh, spend a couple of minutes on this, which was um, because it was so deliberate, uh, which was in uh, Rwanda. Mm. Uh, and the use of a of a, a of a show, yeah, um, NGO funded, I think, yeah, Dutch NGO. Am I getting that, that right? That's right. Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, and it seemed to kind of work. Could you say because that you know, given the slaughter of whatever it was of a million um, Tutsis or something, that was a particularly you know stark example in some ways, both of the of both points you're making. One is you can depersonalize people to the extent that you can slaughter them in those numbers, but then also how a, a show helped to help seem to help heal the divide. Yeah, this is part of um, the the show you're you're mentioning is called uh, New Dawn. And it was a radio soap opera uh, that that aired in Rwanda after the the genocide, and it's part of a larger movement called entertainment education. And mm-hmm. you'll find it mainly in in developing countries where they'll ha- they'll, they'll they'll on purpose uh, create a, a show, often a radio drama or TV show, and build into it certain types of messaging with the understanding that people will pay attention because there's a good story associated where they're not going to pay attention to a public health message about AIDS or HIV if it's just a lecture. But if you you work these messages into a story, people will pay attention. And I was interested in the New Dawn story because it got a lot of press. It got a lot of press in America um, as being this incredible proof of the power of story to do good in the world, even in situations as dire and uh, difficult as Rwanda in the aftermath of the genocide. Um, and so what the show did was, you know, basically was a, a kind of a, a Romeo and Juliet story about mm. a romance between a Hutu uh, boy, I believe, and a Tutsi girl. It might have been reversed, something like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a, a forbidden love story across ethnic uh, lines. And after uh, listening to the story, which was intended to break down barriers between Hutu and Tutsi and show each side that the people on the other side weren't the drooling monsters they imagined. They were just like them the same type of people. Um, And they were able to show like sort of statistically significant uh, movement in people's attitudes of tolerance towards the other group. And this is all all good. But there was this, Mm. what what I was struck by was all this publicity that followed the publication of this research, because there was a research study Mm -hmm on New Dawn, um, sort of just validated and said how wonderful storytelling is. Look what, it, look what it did. Again, without even seeming to notice that the whole genocide was driven by storytelling. <laughs> right. You know, there's this whole, I mean, there's a whole story um, built up, you know, by a, by, a, by a supremacist Hutu power ideology that said that the Tutsis were basically a cockroach people. That's the word they use for them, cockroaches. They were sort of an invasive species that had to be annihilated before the Tutsi annihilated them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a very clear story um, that drove the genocide. Um, 
And also very clearly, the negative power of story in this example was much, much vaster, much, much vaster than the positive story illustrated, the positive power illustrated by New Dawn. New Dawn did some good, but it didn't like, you know, heal all the problems in Rwanda, obviously. No, and it didn't it didn't bring a million people back, of course. Um, so I, yeah, that's exactly why it struck me too, was because I guess, you know, our desire to sort of see the positive power of story is so strong. That's yeah. you know, part of our own story, I guess, that we don't necessarily see the negative part of it. I was thinking actually about some work a colleague of mine did, Melissa Carney, showing the impact of M- an MTV show, 16 and Pregnant, mm. on teenage pregnancy rates um, because it was shown at different times in different states in the US. Oh, cool. Uh, and so she had a natural experiment. It was able to show that it had a much more powerful effect on teen pregnancy rates than any public health campaign. <laughs> I mean, like lecturing 16-year-olds not to get pregnant uh, in high schools is not very effective. But a show which actually Absolutely. went through the lives of the di- and the difficulties of it is back to your point about... Great example. Like, by, you you inhab- inhabit that world. And, and, and there has... The, the positive version of this, and you do again talk about this, is the, the rise of the novel and the ability to tell stories that get you inside the minds of other people as kind of interiority to helps maybe not to create this sort of rah rah, we're all amazing, we're all the same, but it does at least help to situate the idea of a kind of universal worth. I'm not going, maybe I'm not going to be your friend or marry you, but I'm not going to kill you. Um, and and, and is, do you the think the story so still has that capacity? With, with- with killing being killed. <laughs> yeah, but it's almost like you want a story that allows someone to be not like you and different, but not therefore evil and to be wiped out, right? Um, it's like sometimes it feels like, I guess I'm trying to say, what's the middle ground? Yeah. There's the stories can bring us all together and we're all family. You know, we're a global village, as you quote. We're a one, but one big family. We're all the same underneath. And, and these stories just show that, right? So this is kind of right. And on the other hand, it's like, no, they're cockroaches or the, they're Jews destroying the world with their global conspiracy or they're what Nazis uh, and have to be wiped, wiped out. Yeah. But there's got to, is there a role for stories in this slightly boring middle ground or not? Just because stories have to be exciting. And so you can't do the boring work of political economy or like, you know, like liberal democracy. Is it just a terrible story? It's really boring. Yeah, I, I do worry that the, the structure of storytelling isn't cultural. I think it's biological. Um, I think we are inherently drawn to stories about protagonists. I, I, how, I put it in the book, something like humans by nature need stories. Stories by nature need problems. And problems almost by nature, but not quite, need villains to cause them. So for all the drawing together stories do, they are, there's also a splitting apart. They, 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 they define what good behavior is, and they personify bad behavior and the behavior of antagonists who, in order for us to feel good at the end of the story, have to be punished. We do not like stories when the villain is forgiven at the end. We do not like stories when the villain gets away with it, of course. And we do not like stories where the villain is like rehabilitated at the end. We want them, we want them punished. We want them to pay for, for what they've done. Mm. Um, and so I do worry that there are other ways of telling stories. For instance, you can just do without villains altogether. It's very easy. Just get rid of them. Um, because shit does just happen sometimes. Problems can happen without there being a human agent to cause them. Uh, an example of this I get into in the book is the, is the film Babel. 
I think Babel's a mm-hmm. great, great film. And there's no bad guys in it. Horrible, horrible things happen. The, the, the film is death-haunted. Everyone is from beginning to end of the story involved in a horrific predicament. Every single character. Um, but there's no bad guys who caused it. Uh, things happen. You know, Maybe there's like... Um, you know, there's inadvertent harm caused by people, like, you know, by accident or right. by, by carelessness, you know, something bad will happen. But no one is evil in the story. And no, so, so these kind of stories can be told and, and told well. Um, and I hope people will start trying to tell stories that don't depend so much for their grip on the depredations of evil villains. I hope we will do this, especially in our nonfiction storytelling, in our, in our, in our political Mm. storytelling, um, where we stop sort of personifying the other side as, you know, wicked demons. Both sides think the other side is out to destroy America. Um, right. What's, what's more, what's more evil than that? What's more evil than trying to destroy America? Especially, yes. Especially given how important the story is. I was thinking when you were talking about that, the movie marriage story, which got quite a lot of attention, I think, um, partly for the reason you're talking about, because um, it was Scarlett Johansson and uh, Isaac. Well, anyway, no, you'll think of Oscar Isaac, but it's not. It's the guy that plays. Um, now I can't remember the guy in Star Wars. Uh, he's yeah, brilliant. he's in everything. Okay. Adam Driver. Adam Driver. Adam Driver. Oh, that's who it and was. I think Scarlett okay. Johansson. Yes, yes. Uh, a marriage story, and and I think one thing got so much attention is that it is this kind of incredibly intimate depiction of the end of a relationship. Yeah. In which neither of them done anything bad. Right. 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 It's not a typical story. I had an affair or she's done this or whatever. It's just like no relationships end mm-hmm. and it's painful and difficult and so on. I think actually it's one of the reasons why a lot of conservatives didn't really like it. Okay. Um, yeah. Because I think because it sort of just said, look, sometimes marriages do just, right. you know, for no one's fault um, kind of end. But I wonder also, and this is actually one of the one of the things I did just want to talk to you about now last few minutes is I wonder if that's why you take this turn towards the end of the book to talk about the lack of uh, political diversity in academia, which I was a bit surprised by, honestly, it felt I didn't see that coming. Um, when I was reading it, but you have these kind of statistics, which people will know if they've listened to Jonathan Haidt and Heterodox Academy. And I've had John Jonathan on here too, but some quite what some startling statistics actually about just how left wing, uh the the norm has become and i guess i'm you know it wasn't is that why you care about that why why from a storytelling point of view do you care about the fact that academic departments are full of left-wingers now well is it the dehumanization bit like what yes part of it it's part of it um i i have multiple concerns about it um that I believe that section of the book is in a section called The End of Reality, where I'm talking about sort of the breakdown of any kind of common frame of reference where we're just not living in the same reality if we're on the left or we're on the right. And I just launched into a fairly uh, shrill (laughs) attack on uh, the president at the the time, uh, Donald. and. I was seeking a little bit of political balance, to be honest. I didn't want to be yeah. um, a partisan hack or something like that. You know, I wanted, I wanted people. I wanted, to, I wanted to say that this wasn't just mm. a them problem. Um, right. the, the breakdown of reality. This is an us problem as well, as in it's an everyone problem, left and right. And the statistics on the political bias 
in the academy are absolutely stunning and they're absolutely shameful. <laughs> you know, uh, something like 40 to 1 uh, Democrats to yes. Republicans in anthropology, 33 to 1 in my field of English literature. In some fields like uh, gender studies, there's literally no Republicans. I mean, just not one uh, out Republican right. in the entire discipline in something like 60 of the top uh, schools in the country. Mm-hmm. And the problem is when, when you have this kind of, uh, when you get a bunch of people into a room and they're all on the same side. Well, let me back up a little bit. If you get a bunch of people mm-hmm. in a room and they're on different sides of a debate, let's say it's gun control, they will kind of work their way towards some sort of middle position. Um, I'm not saying that kumbaya will happen, but there will be some sort of moderating effect of different views in the room. But if you get a a bunch of same side people in the room, they don't move Mm -hmm. towards the most moderate position. They stampede towards the most extreme position. They get more extreme. You quote Cass Sunstein's work on this. Yes, exactly. Very well. Yeah. And and this is what we have in academia now. We have people uh, all on... We have, we have rooms full of people who are all on the same side, and they're all stampeding towards the most extreme sorts of positions. Yeah, and that's a problem partly because of the story you then tell about the other side. And you... Yes. I, I mean, I, this is something that's kind of occurring to me now, but when someone's telling a story about themselves or or why they believe a certain thing. It's one of the things Jonathan Haidt always says, is that when someone t- says something that you think is preposterous or racist or kind of, don't just start launching into why it's preposterous or racist or whatever. Ask them why they think that. Mm. Talk to them about what they think. So in a way, so what we're doing is a story of their beliefs. Tell me the story of how you came to believe that. Right. And that seems to help in some ways of kind of, accessing that rather than just well you're clearly wrong and stupid and racist and evil or communist and right. whatever and so so i wonder if you just it's just harder than if you don't encounter people like that so if someone does walk in you know a republican a pro-life republican walks into a gender studies department or something yeah right they're gonna have a rough time of it because the immediate assumption will be right you're only saying that because you want to control women and you you hate women and whatever right. and not the story like what's right. the story of how you came to b- believe that so we don't hear competing stories enough if we're in bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, and, and, and once you say to somebody, oh, you think these things because you hate women. Hmm. That's, this, is, this, is, this, is not, this is not a good uh, public relations campaign. It's, it's game over. It's game point, over. It? Well, it's like, you just called me a vampire. You just called me Satan. Um, what kind of monster hates women? Yeah, but we do it. But you're right. We're turning. Uh, Arthur Brooks has this line: "When did our opponents become our enemies?" Yeah, uh, and I think there's something there about the the villainization. Yeah, uh, and of course the president whose name you don't like to say. Yeah, it's quite funny. <laughs> it's funny though. You don't you don't actually use his name in the book. You call him the Big Blair, yes. but uh, but B L A R E I should say for British listeners. Yeah, um, not B L A R I R. Um, uh, is that you know, he was a master of that, right? He was just all about villain. The villainization yeah. uh, is incredibly powerful. But what you're seeing is, you, what you're trying to say, I think, is that that's true of both sides now. And we're all in danger of villainizing the other. Yeah. No, I, I think we're doing it. I think, I think yeah. we're, we're doing it. I mean, a good example of this would be, like, you know, 
a film that I liked very much because it's completely consistent with my politics down, you know, 100% is the film uh, Don't Look Up, the Leonardo, mm. Leonardo DiCaprio, Meryl Streep, mm. you know, comedy about, uh, you know, where it's sort of a allegory of global warming. A, comedy's, mm-hmm. a comet's going to hit the earth, but it's really about global warming. Maybe it's about, you know, the pandemic and other things as well. But, um, but there's this... The, the film makes this horrible, catastrophic mistake in that it can't help for satirical, comedic purposes, but make the bad guys in the story red-hatted Republican buffoons. And the people that they consider to be red-hatted Republican buffoons are exactly the people they need to persuade that global warming is a serious problem. And so they just they just squander this opportunity to actually make headway in the debate about global warming, climate change, and so forth um, by just preaching to the choir. Um, yeah. Yes, I, I actually, I'm refusing on principle to watch the movie okay. on exactly those grounds because oh, really? so many liberal friends have just came and said it just tells you everything that's wrong with America and, and you know it just is clearly just vindicating all their prior yeah. priors and what little I know about it suggests that it that it's just kind of her- horrifically ineffective and uh tribalizing and just like I I I, I, I if I watched it I'd be, I'm sure I'd be hate watching it now yeah. because of its caricaturing um, well it's very funny and it's it's, it's hard to resist for it? for a comedic storyteller mm-hmm. It's hard to resist Donald Trump. He's very funny. Oh, it's very, very funny. I mean, every, yeah. I mean, the, certainly the the anti-Trump forces are, I think, struggling to give up Trump almost as much as the pro-Trump oh, forces because you just because he's made such an excellent villain. But it does make me wonder a little bit about where you start your book and where you start your argument, which is that story is a form of persuasion you use the word sway yeah. right we use the way we sway each other and it could be i could be trying to influence you to sleep with me or vote for me or like me more or whatever but but it's a form of persuasion and you slightly wonder whether that's less true in the examples we've just given you use the phrase preaching to the choir yeah and you are even seeing people you know, sorting their church membership according to their political affiliation yeah right? yeah sure. so in that case you're lit- literally preaching to the choir and so this problem of empathy and enmity maybe maybe we're using stories less to persuade than we were less to sway and more to more to bond more to self more to say i agree with you more in the sort of second version of sunstein's examples more so that we can just pat each other on the back about how right we are and how wrong they are rather than try and persuade people how right we are we just want to be reminded yeah i, I would agree with right all of that i think but i think that's part of sway i think i mean i think part of what we're doing hmm. is trying to persuade someone to to come over to our point of view to cut to 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 leave one camp and join our camp. But part of storytelling, the sway of storytelling is also exercised just to maintain our bonds, to maintain our tribal identities, um, all of the things uh, that you just mentioned. Stories can be persuasive. That's what I'm saying. All, all, the, all that the storytellers who made Don't Look Up had to do was to do a very honest, very reasonable thing and put Democrats in that White House. Because mm-hmm. did, did global warming not happen under Republican and Democratic? And then, and then you could have, could have had a, a piece 
a work of persuasive storytelling that might have drawn people in from the other side. So the stories can, if we can resist, again, if we can resist telling them in the crudest and most primitive ways, stories really can be forces that, 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 that build bridges and, and, and bring people out of their entrenchments. They're the only things that are good at bringing people out of entrenchments. So if I just, if I just tell people my arguments about, I, I don't know, abortion, um, they'll just turn off if, if, if those arguments are against theirs. But if I'm able to tell the compelling, emotionally drenched story, to, story that doesn't turn them into the villain of the story, then maybe I can make some, some headway. Yeah. Well, I've kept you a little bit longer than I said I would, but um, that's because it was such a, a, a wonderful conversation. So thank you for your work uh, in this space. I think the whole the whole space uh, is just fascinating. As you said, it's early stages, yeah. but I think understanding the evolutionary, the cultural, the neuro, the neurological role of stories and how that overlaps with our politics is just, um, I think it's just really fascinating and important work. And, the, and your style, both, I will say, in writing, but also now I can say speaking too, is one of like really... Real, a real endeavor to 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 learn together and search and and dialogue and so oh. in, that, in that sense i think you're so you are, you appear to be you appear to be practicing what you preach <laughs> uh which is which is great and so thanks again for coming on and talking about your work it was actually uh it, it was it was it was great talking to you i enjoyed it thank you thank you richard Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.